It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A vigil in Uvalde, Texas, Wednesday night to remember the 19 children and two teachers killed by an 18-year-old in the deadliest school shooting in a decade another in a string of mass shootings that have rocked the country. And for people across the country, from the President of the United States to the coach of the Golden State Warriors, there was sorrow, frustration, and anger at yet another senseless shooting. Why? Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone? Now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. Joining me is Columbia Law School professor Jeffrey Fagan. This tragic shooting at an elementary school in Texas happened just 10 days after another tragedy at a supermarket in Buffalo. But should we continue to be shocked at these shootings when even modest restrictions on guns are not tolerated in this country? Well, no, I think the past is the best prologue to the future. And unless the laws change restricting access to um, the kind of weaponry that's been used pretty much and almost exclusively in the last, oh, I'd say dozen or so school shootings, then they're going to keep happening. The refrain from gun rights groups, and in fact, Oklahoma Republican Senator Jim Inhofe just said this, is that no legislation could stop shootings like this. Guns are the leading cause of death for children and teenagers. And, you know, it's a fairly recent trend because other types of death for children and young adults have been declining. But uh, this one seems to be going up. And it's unreasonable to expect a pattern that's existed fairly steadily over the past 15, 20 years, going back to Columbine. To cease because we pass a law is unreasonable and unrealistic. Whether we can reduce the number of school shootings and then gradually bring them to a, a fairly small number through passage of legislation that would restrict access to 
firearms that have very little value other than to kill other humans would be a major step towards reducing the carnage in schools. Should there be tougher security in schools? I mean, my daughter went to public high school in New York City more than a decade ago, and the kids had to go through metal detectors every day. There are metal detectors in school now, and Mayor Adams has just talked about the very high rate of seizures of weapons in the schools in the past several months. But he was also very careful to say that guns were a very, very small fraction of the weapons that were seized in school through metal detectors. So there's an incredible proliferation of weapons and firearms in the hands of people who just don't have the developmental capacities and the ability to control their impulses who are using guns. And the availability of the weapons seems to control the decision-making about whether to use it. So, for example, we did research and we asked kids who were involved in gun violence several years ago. And we said, tell us about the circumstances under which you choose to use a gun and the circumstances when you choose to not use a gun, even though you could use a gun. And the students all said, we used a gun when we believed that the other guy had a gun. And so there's a certain amount of strategic thinking that goes on when young people are deciding whether or not to use a gun. If we're talking about school shootings, the availability of a weapon that can very efficiently and effectively carry out whatever the goals are of, of a school shooter or a church shooter, if we think about Sutherland Springs in Texas, or people in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, the availability of a weapon that can do that job makes it almost irresistible when somebody has the impulse to do that. And it's a fairly simple axiom. If there were no firearms of this nature available, there would be far, far fewer school shootings. And that's what the Republicans don't get. They say, well, you know, a statute has to be able to eliminate this. No, a statute has to be able to reduce it. And then eventually other measures come in that are reinforcing of the statute that would help to eliminate the, the problem. Are there other measures that schools should be taking for security? Because it doesn't look like there's going to be passage of a law anytime soon, at least a federal law. No, there certainly won't be, not even a background check law. You know, it's hard to say about what schools can do, but all of the measures that I've heard from arming teachers to employing retired police officers to establishing sort of prison-like perimeters around the schools. They may be effective in reducing school shootings, but, you know, there's something that we understand when somebody wants to commit an act of violence, which is displacement. It might simply displace those acts of violence from schools to places like shopping malls, which have been shot up, grocery stores, which we know have been shot up. And so you have to worry about the fact that somebody with that motivation will simply substitute another target for a school if they can't shoot up the school. This is the reason why we might want to think about reducing the access to those weapons of mass destruction as opposed to simply hardening the target. And what do you say to supporters of gun rights who say, you can't infringe on my Second Amendment rights? Second Amendment talks about firearms. It doesn't talk about which types of firearms. We can preserve the rights under the Second Amendment, but we can also reduce access to firearms which have very limited purposes and very high lethality. One can go out and purchase a rocket-propelled grenade launcher, and that's a weapon. Some interpretations of Heller in the current constitutional right might say that's just simply a weapon that's used in self-defense and say somebody's driving a tank into your living room. That's an absurd example, of course, but it does talk about the fact that there's no upper limit on the nature of weapon, and particularly when it comes to a firearm. So I think to the extent that we celebrate and valorize the individual right to a firearm without thinking about the collective costs or the collective rights of the individuals who'd be subject to the consequences of making those firearms available, basically without any discretion, is championing the individual over the collective. Now, maybe that's part of the culture of America that we want to celebrate. I don't think that's the case, though. There's too many instances where we celebrate and preserve the well-being of the collective.
I think there's a real fundamental constitutional principle about individual versus uh, individual rights versus collective well-being. Thanks. That's Professor Jeffrey Fagan of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. After the tragic school shooting in Texas by a teenager who bought his AR-15 style rifle legally, President Joe Biden called for action on gun control legislation that has stalled on Capitol Hill. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name... Are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. But the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, brushed aside calls for strict gun legislation, saying gun laws don't curb violence in major cities that have them. I hate to say this, but there are more people who were shot every weekend in Chicago than there are in schools in Texas. Joining me is an expert in Second Amendment law, Joseph Bloker, a professor at Duke Law School. In America, we have more guns than people, and there's been an upward trend in the purchase of guns since 2020. Why are Americans buying more guns? Yeah, there's a few things to say about it. I mean, I think one is the sheer number of guns, but another is, you know, why are people buying guns? As far as the sheer number, I think the thing that always stands out to me is that although the number of guns in circulation seems to continue going up, the percentage of Americans who own them continues to go down. There was a bit of a spike during the pandemic, I guess the background of George Floyd-related protests and so on, but 
if you look over the last 10 or 15 years, actually, the percentage of Americans who live in a household with a gun continues to decline. So what that means is that the people who own guns are buying more and more, but the number of people who have them continues to go down. But the other thing that's changed really dramatically, I think the tipping point was in the last 10 or 15 years, is that the primary reason for gun ownership has shifted. It has historically been recreation and hunting, and it is today self-defense. And so the motivation, and then I think that sort of changes the mindset for gun ownership has dramatically changed, too. And self-defense is a justification we hear a lot. Even just as Brett Kavanaugh asked during the oral arguments in the case over New York's gun law, why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and I want to be able to defend myself? So this is a tricky one because so much of this is a debate about sort of hypotheticals and counterfactuals and what would have happened if this person had had a gun or if this person had not had a gun. And and that's tricky. I think to do that well requires a rigorous look at big sets of data rather than sort of trading hypotheticals and anecdotes. And there has been scholarship on this and scholars disagree, unsurprisingly, about the degree to which permissive public carry laws either do or don't reduce rates of particular kinds of violent crime. I've never seen anything convincing that guns in schools would reduce the mass school shootings that we've seen. I mean, there was an armed guard at the school in Texas, and that wasn't enough. The gun that was purchased here was purchased legally. Is this the type of gun that people should be able to purchase? It's an assault rifle, right? Yeah, it's it, you know the category of what constitutes an assault rifle is actually something that can be a little it can be harder to pin down than some might think. You know, um, what people call assault rifles are usually just semi-automatic rifles, meaning that one pull of the trigger shoots one bullet. They're not machine guns, which are automatic, where you pull the trigger and multiple bullets shoot. And in many ways, they're just normal rifles with these sort of cosmetic features and some functional features, but mostly cosmetic features that make them look military. Now, for whatever reason, they have, you know, turned out to be the weapon of choice for many of the worst mass shootings that we've seen. And there's sort of conflicting data about the degree to which prohibiting them could save lives or could prevent those kinds of shootings. Again, studies on both sides. For 10 years, we had a federal prohibition on the sale of assault weapons, not the possession. The possession was still permitted, but so if you already had one, you could keep it. But during the span of that federal law, not much changed, it seems, with regard to gun violence connected to those guns. But it was just 10 years, and it was just a sale prohibition. Maybe a broader law would have done more. I think the thing that we always have to keep in mind is that however you So look at the data. The biggest problem, the the category of guns that's associated with the most death is the handgun rather than the assault rifle, which, you know, tends to show up in these high, high profile mass shooting incidents. But it's really the daily toll of handgun violence, especially in urban centers, that that accounts for the, the majority of gun homicides every year. President Biden has called on Congress to end gun violence by passing common sense gun laws. Is federal legislation the answer? I think it's going to require a variety of responses, federal, state, and local. I think there are some kinds of laws that are best done at the federal level. Expanded background checks would be a good example. That's easiest to administer using a national instant background check system, which relies on data that comes from the state. 
But at the state level, there's plenty of reforms as well, some of which have some bipartisan support and have become more popular even in the last five years. So the passage of extreme risk protection order laws, often called red flag laws, that's a good example. There's more than 20 states have those now. Almost all of them have been adopted in the last five years. So there's room there. At the local level, things are a little trickier because most states, in fact, more than 40 states now, have what are called preemption laws, which make it hard for local governments to regulate. But in the states where local governments still have some regulatory space, they could, for example, designate certain places like bars or you know busy public areas, stadiums, et cetera, as sensitive places where guns shouldn't be taken. They might impose licensing requirements on people carrying guns into particular places. So it's going to require a broad response at the federal, state, and local level. So I want to go back because it wasn't until 2008 that the Supreme Court ruled the Second Amendment protects the gun rights of individuals. That was the Heller case, and it was a five to four decision. In your opinion, is that a true reading of the Second Amendment? Yeah, I should say in in the interest of full disclosure here, I was one of the attorneys who represented the District of Columbia in that case. So I was on the losing side of that case. You know, my view on it now is that the question is much closer than the Supreme Court made it sound. So the question for the court was whether the Second Amendment extends to private purposes like the individual use of guns for self-defense against criminals or whether it is limited to the organized militia, that is like state militia, um, and to people and arms and activities having some connections to those militias. I actually think that's a hard question. I think that Justice Scalia's majority opinion could have been much better reasoned if he were not so committed to relying on some of the historical sources that he did. I think that Justice Stevens in dissent had at least plausibly the better of the historical arguments. But I think Heller itself is settled law, and at least until now, it has not been the problem. You know, the main obstacle to gun regulation is still political. It's not that courts are striking down gun laws. Until recently, anyway, courts haven't been striking down many gun laws. It's more that the laws are just never being passed in the first place. And Justice Scalia's opinion is very explicit that the government retains regulatory authority over things like dangerous and unusual weapons and certain classes of persons and gun carrying certain places and, for that matter, concealed carrying. And so it's really kind of up to us. What are we going to do in that space that Heller leaves open? That space may be closed somewhat because, you know, we're waiting for this opinion from the court. And most people who listen to those oral arguments are anticipating that the court is going to strike down New York's law imposing special requirements to get a handgun license. Yeah, I think the challengers in that case have reason to feel confident. I think that the New York law, at least in its current form, is probably going to be struck down. And what we're really waiting to hear is on what basis, like how broad is the Supreme Court's ruling going to be? The challenge is to New York's current system for issuing permits to publicly carry a concealed handgun. And the court could just say, well, New York standard is too strict or New York standard has too much discretion built into it. And that would be a relatively limited holding and it would still be a big one. Um, But the court could go further and say, you know, permit requirements for public carrying are unconstitutional or they all have to be what are called shall issue, meaning based on just purely objective criterion. And those those would be broader. The other thing the court could do, and I think this is the one that's sort of most in the weeds, but maybe the most significant, is that they could adopt a whole new test, a whole new methodology for evaluating whether gun laws New York's or others, are constitutional. And that would be what's called the test of text, history, and tradition, which was advocated by then Judge Brett Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit before he was elevated to the Supreme Court. And under that test, the idea would be gun laws should be evaluated based solely by reference to text, 
history and tradition. And I filed a brief in the New York case arguing that that would be a bad idea. I think that's true. I think that's an extreme form of originalism that's just not going to give judges guidance in most cases. It would make it hard to evaluate, you know, the federal rules prohibiting guns on airplanes, right? What do the framers think about that? Nothing. They had no idea. Or the current federal law prohibiting gun possession by people who committed crimes of domestic violence, not even prosecuted as a crime in the late 1700s. So I think those of us who are really in the field are keeping an eye on that methodological question as well as the substantive outcome with regard to New York's law. Thanks, Joseph. That's Professor Joseph Bloker of Duke Law School. A note, Every Town for Gun Safety, which advocates for universal background checks and gun safety measures, is backed by Michael Bloomberg, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News parent company, Bloomberg LP. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.